Blog Talk Radio. You know, 
what 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 should we play? Did you know who um who was on here once? It was Bruce Sudano. He's written a lot of songs that you know. He used to be at the band called Brooklyn Dreams. And he's got a new CD out. He was on two years ago with the last CD he made, but he's got a new CD out. And But here's a song he also wrote or co-wrote with his, uh, with his late wife, and you probably know from her version of it. So, Bruce Sudano. You say I'm out on the street at night. Picking up all kinds of strangers Price is right You can't score if your pocket's tight You want a good time You ask yourself Who they are Like anybody else They come from near and far Bad girls Talking about the sad girl Sad, 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 sad girl Talking about the bad girl Now it's Friday night And the strip is hot Sun gone down And they're out to try Spirits high, legs look hot Do you want to get down? You ask yourself who they are. Like everybody else, they want to be a star. Bad girls talking about the sad girls. Sad, sad girls talking about the bad girls.
Chaque fois 
well, okay, like recently I've had a, a, a cosplay or a costume makers and prop makers on, Thomas J. Williford, Captain Anthony LaGrange, also known as Tony Ballard Smoot, Paige Gardner of Costume Art. A lot of these folks have been on. Um, and so, you know, you might know them if you know a lot about costumes or steampunk. Or sometimes it's people that you may have never heard of. Well, I'm glad you like both. I'm glad you like learning new things as well as hearing people that you haven't gotten to hear uh, in a long time or somebody that you've already been a fan of. Anyway, let me see where we're going to go next with this. I've got something to read. Oh, by the way, um, if you follow Andrea Walker, she released her her first book was published last year as part of a a trilogy. And it was What Happened in the Cove. Very interesting story. And I actually got to meet her live and in person. She lives in Arizona, but not in Tucson, but she made a trip to Tucson from where she lives so that we could meet in real life at the Wild Wild West Con. And I was so thrilled. Uh, Not that she's, first I was thinking, oh, wait till she sees this. And then I remembered her sister is cosplayer, very famous cosplayer, well-known and well-loved, Harley Sin. So often you can find Andrea at these events with her sister, Harley Sin, and she will be selling her books there. But uh, then I realized, oh, she's used to cons, but I still think Wild Wild West Con is special because it's actually in an old Western town. So you're a kind of mise-en-scene, as they say, you know, you're in Western stuff. And as I told my husband, see, honey, I showed him the video, it's a little Western town where movies and TV shows were filmed. And therefore, because our environment's a Western town and we're Western-themed steampunk, we don't look out of place. And my husband, he was reading in bed when I was telling him this, and he just nodded and said, mm-hmm. just keep telling yourself that. But anyway, uh, so she came out, Andrea Walker, or A.L. Walker, as, as she writes under, came out. I got to actually meet her in person. She was even lovelier than her pictures and so much fun to meet. And she's got the second book of the Kittry series started, and she just very, very kindly let me have a couple of chapters, so I'll be reading some of that a little bit later. But first, while I warm up, the, and hey, if you got anybody from Constellation, anybody from, from home quarantine, from your own bunker, whatever, give me a call. Tell me what's going on. Tell me how you're keeping yourself entertained uh, or your family, your roommates, your kids, your pets. Tell me what you're doing. Uh, we're kind of all in this together, even though we're separate while we're doing it. Give me a call. The number is 646-716-9922. Or you can message me on Facebook as Madam Perry Salon or Jennifer Modette Perry. So while I while I wait for somebody to call or while I see if I uh, get my throat ready to read, I'm going to read. Oh, oh, you know who I love? It's a British band from Liverpool, Joe Symes and the Loving Kind. I'm going to play a song by them called Lovers Undercover.
that was Joe Symes and the Loving Kind, and it's a, uh, I said it's a band from Liverpool, England, and hopefully they're going to be in the U.S. this year. But this band has really taken off. Uh, they've been featured a lot live on the BBC Four. Uh, let's see which one of those Oasis boys, one of those Gallagher boys, has a band. Take birds, pipe, blah 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 blah. Anyway, um, they show up at a lot of festivals with that Gallagher fellow, and he's a lot of fun. So I have a poem I'd like to play before I read from uh, A.L. Walker's book. And the poem is by uh, a British author and poet, Bunny Goodjohn. She lives in West Virginia and teaches at Randolph College. But this, uh, Randolph College. This is a poem she wrote and it's the recording uh, the person reading it is Shane Stedham a voiceover artist with the, the gorgeous voice if you haven't heard of Bunny Goodjohn find her, find her blog uh, find her books her books um, Sticklebacks and Snow Globes, The Beginning Things and her book of poetry Bone Song also, if you go to her website, a few years ago, you know, she had one of these catfishers sending her messages, and you know how they don't really have a good grasp of English, much less English grammar, idioms, and so forth. So she began responding to this catfisher sort of in the same manner. And she would share it on Facebook, and we all kept saying, this is so, you've got to put this on your blog. You've got publishes. You've got, this is just too good, too funny. Uh, so she did. She started putting bits of it on her website. So look up Bunny Good John and read the catfishing stories. I mean, it's not funny. Some people do get, uh, do buy into it and think that there is somebody who is wealthy and in love with them in another country who only needs a little bit, well, who needs a lot of money until their money is released by the bank, whatever. Uh, but she made it entertaining for us, and, and you'll you'll thank me for sending you to that. So let's see. I'm going to do one more song. Oh, no, no, no. That's right. I'm going to play Association Time. This is called Association Time at the Blue Ridge Women's Correction Facility from the poem by Bunny Goodjohn, and it's read by actor Shane Stedham. Association Time at the Blue Ridge Women's Correctional Facility from Bone Song by Bunny Goodjohn. Deaf Brenda's telling us about the time her husband smacked her with a cockatiel's cage stand, how sound closed down that night, and yet her memory holds the parrot's scream. She recalls slow feathers, tiny gray curls landing on her yellow fun fur slippers. We lean in. She's telling our story, and we love how they all start happy with sass and drinks. She threw his sorry ass outside, piled furniture against the door, and then took her whiskey and the kids to bed, slept sound despite the ricochet of words against the trailer's siding. There is no recollection of clubbing him with the iron. But there it was, bloody, and shining on the deck. What can I say, she said, her yard full of police and plastic toys. Her hands already clasped behind her back. Drink brings a crazy bitch to fuck up my life. 
My turn for tales, but I'm just here for plain old DUI. So I tell the girls of Rita, patron saint of suffering, whose mouth was home to bees that buzzed behind her teeth that left her tongue unstung, a saint I'd forgotten until Beth Brenda described her tinnitus as a bee song. The rec room hums and we're all lost to joining drunken dots of our own blackout biography. We're haunted by mouths that have always swarmed with bees, homesick for a time when we were too blessed, too young, to know the treachery of swallowing. All right. Uh, association time with the Blue Ridge Women's Correction Facility, uh, written by Bunny Goodjohn from her book of poetry, Bone Song, and read by actress Day, Shane Stedham. Now, I promised you some something from the next book by Andrea Walker, who writes A.L. Walker. So here, let me tell you about the first book in case you haven't read it, because I know that she's been um, around the world. She's been doing podcast interviews. She's had events at pretty much, uh, well, actually several times, especially cosplay-type events uh, across the West. So I'm going to read the read what what happened in the cove is about is like I said it's book one of the Kittry series and it says although Bria had escaped her abusive past life in the states was thought her horrible life would finally be over by her own hands but what happened in the cove would change everything what also happened was it said oh uh then it gets to brain, thrust into a life he never asked for, losing everything he had once held dear. Frayne, who resembles an exotic bird, must find his way in a hostile universe he never knew existed after escaping his captors. Their unexpected meeting in an abandoned amusement park changes both, but can they survive? This is a fairy tale that rejects the traditional tropes of masculine and feminine in favor of pure fantasy and escape for readers who are ultra-sensitive to violence, upset, and reminders of traditional mores. Theirs is a story of healing from abuse, of finding new hope places, of exploring their cultures and spirituality, and of reconciling their past with what they learned together. So already you know... uh, this girl's had a rough life, and she's ready to end it with her own hands. And Frayne, who has uh, escaped from a very hostile world, resembles an exotic bird. So you've got that in mind between Bria and Frayne. So that's from book one. Now, I'm going to read an advanced copy, hey, and this is the raw stuff, not edited. If you've ever been to Book Expo America, uh, which is the biggest, hugest, most massive thing, wonderful book event ever. I've only been to three of them, but if you've ever been to Book Expo in New York at the Javits Center, uh, all everybody that has anything to do with books, retailers, publishers, media, everything, writers are there. And... People will give you books, but 
most of them will have a stamp on the front that says unabridged, unedited. This is not the final copy, and it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if it's you know the most famous people. I've got books by uh, Lisa Scottolini, Angelica Houston, Billy Idol, uh, everyone, Jody Picoult, and they all say across the front, this is um, an advanced copy from Media. Please contact us before quoting or in case you know you're doing a review, don't quote it because some of it needs to be edited or tightened up a little bit. This is just an advanced copy for the media because let me give you a little tip. If you're an independent author, and as a, some of you know, I have a firm, Lone Wolf Communications. I am an entertainment publicity specialist. I studied this at Georgia State. I've worked for HBO, Feld Entertainment. I've I studied film unit publicity at UCLA under the very esteemed Henri Bollinger. And I know a little bit about this, plus things I've learned empirically from other people every chance I get. And one thing independent authors don't do is that they wait until the book is published before they ever start doing anything to promote it. No, no, no. You have to start three to six months ahead. Otherwise, it's too late. Nobody wants to review a book that's already out. So here's what happens. You go ahead and get a book ready three months before, at least three months before the publication date, and put a stamp on the front. Do not quote without checking us first. This is for advanced reader copy. They used to call them galleys. So that reviewers and magazines can have time to read it or assign it to someone to read and give that person time to read and write a review and turn it in before publication goes to print. And that way, when your book comes out, then it's ready. You've got a review in the magazine the day or week that it comes out. So uh, this is what I've got. Same kind of thing from Andrea Walker is an advanced reader copy, a sneak preview, maybe a little raw bits in there, but I know Walker, and this is going to be great. So, okay, all right, all right, I'll quit talking and read. So you know the story, the characters. This is from book two. Frayne shook his head. He had let himself get captured again. Not that he shouldn't have expected it. He had known they would come looking, but as each year passed, it wasn't as, imp- it wasn't as pressing as important. He thought maybe he'd actually gotten away, but here he was anyways, years later, back in their grasp. Furthermore, from what he could make out through the thick bulkhead, they hadn't even been looking for him. No, it was the vehicle they had been after, the stupid vehicle. Although it made a twisted sort of sense, he could see them viewing the vehicle more valuable than him, even in its current waterlogged state. Lafrain looked around, assessing his current situation. He was being held in what appeared to be a small storage area. Even to his untrained eye, he could tell this wasn't a typical place to hold a captive. He had half expected the transport he was currently on to meet up with some larger vehicle or fleet. But after a while, he figured out that this was not the case. This was no large, highly organized group, just a couple of scavengers out for a quick, easy income. His current accommodations reflected that. The area he had been shoved in was crammed with all sorts of junk, some of which had coats of dust an inch thick. 
The one door was nothing more than a sliding panel and didn't have appear to have any functioning locks or clasp. It did feature a tiny window with years of grime dirtying the light it cast it onto the narrow room, casting everything in a shade of beige. He was restrained, but with ties made up of some type of flexible material, not the automated restraints the Towan so offered favored. They hadn't used any type of drugs or other form of deterrence. They didn't even seem to have these handy. The restraints they used finding some of the junk in the storage area. There were one set of makeshift restraints on his wrist, one on his ankles, but they had tied his wrist in the front, and it didn't take Frayne long to find something amongst the junk to start sawing the restraints holding his ankles. He didn't even have to worry about making too much noise. The little room appeared to be quite near the engine or whatever powered this vehicle he was currently on, and the noise of it drowned out almost everything else. If he hadn't been sitting with his back directly against the wall, the Towans were sitting against on the other side, he probably wouldn't have been able to hear them at all. The restraints were slow to break, and while he was struggling with them, he felt and heard the vehicle not so subtly shift into the gear or whatever it was called that made it go fast in a weird sort of way. He had never really understood how it all worked, but it wasn't necessary to know that to make, to make it do it. He knew that from his own past experience. In this case, though, it was a bad sign. The further away they traveled, the harder it was going to be to get back. He tried sawing faster, harder, but that made it harder. Breaking it strand by strand was slow going, but far more effective. After what seemed an eternity, the final strand popped and his ankles were free. He began to pick at the strands holding his wrist, trying to find a way to prop up the metal tool he was using. At first, he tried to hold it between his feet, but it just kept tilting over as soon as he put any serious weight on it. As he tried for the next solution, bracing the metal thing up between his foot and the wall, he suddenly realized it was suspiciously quiet in the flight chamber. Sure enough, the panel started to slide open. Frayne froze as the panel slid open to reveal the hulking figure of the tow and beyond, come to either check on him or possibly the engine thing, which did sound downright awful, like it was a wounded animal straining against one of his son Bill's metal and string traps. Since his hands were lashed together, he instinctively did the next best thing. From his spot on the floor of the tiny room, using the wall behind him as a brace, he bent over backwards and launched the metal bar at the hulking figure, a burst of adrenaline helping his attempt. The metal bar hit true, bouncing off the Towan's chest and ringing out as it fell to the floor. Unfortunately, even with all the effort, it had no real effect, and now he had alerted the other Towan on board as well. Frayne heard the other giant call out and scraping against metal. As the Towan got up to check on the commotion, the Towan facing Frayne didn't answer just tried to grab Frank. Using the metal shelf behind him as an impromptu ladder, the claws on his feet gripping the metal edge, Frank climbed to the top shelf and wedged himself into narrow space as best he could. The Towan swore and made a move to lunge at him. At the same time, the other Towan arrived at the scene, rushing into the restricted doorway. Suddenly tripping over the forgotten metal bar on the floor, the Towan fell forward, shoving into the first Towan as he lunged forward to grab Frank. The Towan was knocked forehead first onto the metal shelf below Frayne and dropped suddenly onto the floor. The other Towan fell on top of him, 
missing the sharp edge of the shelf, but looking up just in time to see Frayne's clawed hands reaching for his eyes. Clawing and pecking, Frayne tried his best to remove the towman's eyes from his head. The towman whirled from the small storage room into the main cabin, pulling at Frayne and cursing at a hoarse bellow. Although Frayne was fiercely fighting, he was still no real match for the huge giant. The towan finally dragged Frayne's small form off his head and threw him across a cramped cabin, where Frayne landed in a heap atop the controls. The towan, thinking he had won this round, smiled, showing his crooked teeth, just in time for the onboard computer to query. Ship is in motion. Confirm, four hatch open. It was Frayne's turn to smile evilly as the towan's expression turned to one of alarm and the massive giant lunged toward him. Frayne threw his still-bound wrist over a nearby liver and bounced down the control panel as hard as he could. The panel emitted a few sharp beeps and the door began to open. The towman was sucked back against the opening hatch, as was every bit of loose junk in the room. Frayne was lifted as well, and he clung as well as he could to the lever, finding it difficult to breathe in the rapidly thinning air. The hatch got stuck about an eighth of the way open before every alarm in the ship went off at once, and for a moment, Frayne was worried that it wouldn't be enough. There would be no way he could make it to the hatch to shove the giant out without getting sucked out as well. As it was, he was beginning to pass out. The overwhelming vacuum outside finally won, pulling the towing out in such a way that no one should have to see. It was as if the giant slowly deflated from the inside out, skin sucking out last of the narrow gap. As soon as it was free of all debris, the door slammed shut. Most of the alarm ceased, and the ship's inner chamber began to fill with breathable air again. Although Frayne didn't notice, as he was unconscious, still hanging by his wrist from the control panel lever. Frayne awoke an hour or so later, or whatever passed for that when you were traveling in such a manner. He had the worst headache he'd ever had, and he was terribly thirsty. He tried to sit up temporarily forgetting where he was and what had happened. But he was still hanging by his wrist, shaking his head to try to clear the last bit of fuzz from his mind. He realized quickly what was stopping him and pulled his hands free. They were still bound, but a couple of tugs rectified that. The strands had been put under tremendous amount of stress and gave easily. Throwing a glance, back at the hall that contained the storage room, checking for company in case he had merely knocked the tow one out, then turned his attention to the controls on the dash. Most were horribly unfamiliar. This was nothing like the vehicle he had used to get to the planet he had just been recaptured from and was, in fact, still on board, although most likely useless after his years-long stay underwater. That had been sleek and easy enough to use if you had even a bit of experience watching someone else use it. There was nothing but seemingly random screens and buttons and finger pads as far as Frank could see. After several minutes of tense searching, as he could swear he heard the toe was stirring in the back, he finally found what he was looking for. It looked different from the ones he was used to, somehow more rudimentary and rougher, and it didn't appear to have any voice controls, which was a relief, as those could be tuned to a specific individual. But it led up to the touch of his clawed finger, showing a pixelated version of the area around the ship, along with some numbers Frayne didn't understand. However, he was familiar with some of the icons on the little screen. Although he wasn't sure if this one worked the same way, he guessed he could move the screen around to see 
explore the area or pinch his fingers to expand it. The icons represented various places that he could touch to navigate. Well, once he confirmed this was what he was looking for with a quick swipe of his finger, Frank decided that he should first check to make absolutely sure the towing wasn't going to interrupt him. Sliding down the dash onto the floor took a bit of maneuvering, down some wires and over the tipped over stools, too tall and awkward for him to push upright. Not that that would help anything. He'd never be able to reach the panel sitting on one of those anyway. He crept as quiet as he could to the storage room in the back and peered in, nose telling him before his eyes adjusted that the giant beast was dead. The smell of blood was so strong. Frayne took just a minute, floor outside the storage room, taking a few deep breaths. Still nursing a bit of a headache, he closed his eyes and tried for a moment not to think. He knew he needed to do something about his present situation, but he really didn't know what. The navigation pad wouldn't show him where his home, his family was. It would only show major retail areas and points of financial interest, not other places like planets or settlements. He also knew it would show far more tow-and-friendly areas than neutral areas. His best bet was trying to find one of the areas that had a slash across it. From what little he had gathered from his forced stay on Toa, that meant that Toans shouldn't go there. On the other hand, just because Toans might not be welcome didn't mean that he would be. He also knew, at least by rumor, that the Toans paid handsomely for any of their property that might have gone astray. But Frank guessed he wouldn't have much choice. He couldn't just blindly go and hope he had something nice. Okay, so that had happened once. But what were the odds of that happening again? So if it went to one of the ports marked not okay on the panel, maybe they could at least show him where to get back to his family. He'd have to risk it. So he climbed and maneuvered his way up to the control panel, almost taking a spill as the captain chair suddenly decided it had enough crap lately and broke into two main chunks. He moved the picture map on the panel a bit, still not recognizing anything, not even being able to ascertain which direction he was going or even if directions really counted. Lacking any better method of choice, he just hit the nearest slashed rectangle in the square. The shape had stood for convenience ports in past appearances, places to get a fuel or quick meal. He hoped that was still true and that this one didn't have its own specialized pictures. There were words that would float up if one hovered over them too long, but Frayne had never learned to read in any language, much less Toan. It took longer for the bulky old ship to arrive at its destination than Frayne expected. Unlike the Toan convenience ports, this one did not have a fancy entrance or a guarded area. It looked for all the universe like a piece of space trash that someone had decided would do for their business. Buildings of all different materials sprawled across its rather narrow surface like the droppings of rodents. No rhyme or reason. Frayne didn't see any people of any sort, although there were a few ships parked randomly about. Since there didn't seem to be any marked area to land or park, Frayne just let the ship auto-park itself. Once the ship was parked, he just sat there quietly watching for a while. He would have turned off the vehicle, but he didn't know how. Even if he did, he would be afraid he might not get it back on again either. After a half hour or so had passed, no sign of any living beings appearing. He decided to get out and see if the place was as deserted as it felt. 
that could have its benefits as well, especially if it had any abandoned stuff it could use. After grabbing a piece of metal tubing with a somewhat pointed end to use as a makeshift weapon, as well as a bottle with a tow and water mark, he meandered down closer to a couple of the other ships to get a closer look. About halfway to the first ship, he stopped suddenly, keening his ears. He could hear some sort of beat or rhythmic mechanical thumping. It was emanating from a ramshackle building several places away. It was likely to be some sort of machinery, a generator or gravity maker of some sort. There was certainly no air to breathe here, and he wasn't floating. So there was some sort of mechanics at work. Since he had no real goal in mind, Frank decided to follow the sound for a bit, see if it was something more than that. As he drew closer to the dilapidated shack, made of the same random materials as the rest of the rather ugly buildings, he was able to tell it was no machine, or at least not a functional machine. Rather, it was some type of music, hoping that this might mean it was some sort of drinking establishment or other entertainment venue, he continued to wander up to it. There were no signs that this was a retail business, but none of the buildings appeared to be businesses, at least not none he'd ever seen in the past. The ship's panel had marked it as a convenience port, though, so maybe this was the convenient part of that description. That's where I'm going to leave you to wonder. Now, I might read more of this later if somebody asked me to, uh, on a different episode of this podcast, or I might have the author come and read it. But I will say, uh, he's just going to have to find what happened in the Cove by A.L. Walker. So, how about before? Now, I'm going to I'm going to leave the show with some funny. At least I hope you think it's funny from my blog, Memoirs of a Misanthrope. So first, I'm going to play a little bit of music for you, and then. I'm going to read from my essays about job hunting, real life, from my blog, Memoirs of a Misanthrope. But first, how's about Daryl Rhodes with his song, I've Got the Devil in My I got the devil in my pants. I got the devil in my pants. Down the wheel, gotta watch. 
fire down below. to us about Fisdale being the Knicks' new coach. What's your uh, thoughts on that? Well, well, I'll I tell you right now, Ernie, it don't matter who going to coach this team. They don't got no talent on it. And I don't, I don't really feel I talk That's as truth. Hard. I don't feel I talk about the Knicks right Do now. Do talk about lunch? No. <laughs> what would you like to talk about, Chuck? See, Ernie, I've been listening to a podcast called Madame Perry Salon. And I think Jennifer Perry, 
She's a great host. I mean, she got all these bestseller authors, Rostar, all the dip comedians. What about people we that could, don't have rings? Here we go again. I got Real rings. fun. Uh, Real fun. Uh, uh, but I think she's great, and I think people would love her show. She got a great laugh. She make the laugh come out of nowhere, like an eagle come in there and just steal the whole show. It's 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 a beautiful thing. It's not terrible. All righty, and let's see. We're almost to the end. If you got anybody, I was hoping somebody would call from Consolation. Consolation people, 646-716-9922. Uh, give me a call. By the way, if you're listening live, uh, I'm about to read from uh, something of my own. And hope you like it. Hope you go over it. It's actually on Blogspot. It's called Memoirs of a Misanthrope on Blogspot. And maybe you'll find it funny. Maybe you'll just think I'm mean. Or maybe if you don't think either one of those, maybe it'll help you through some insomnia if you need to get to sleep. You know, maybe it'll just kind of bore you to sleep. Either way, if it's useful, if it provides a service, uh, that's still good. That's still good. So, anyway, Memoirs of a Misanthrope, a lot of it was um, job interviews I went on after I got my college degree, age that uh, most people's kids are getting college degree, and then trying to get a job, and the different jobs I had, too, before that. Uh, you know, you ever have feeling something just happens around you because people say, well, well maybe it was just to give me a crazy story to write that people go, oh, yeah. I know, that happens to me too. Uh, so, I'm going to read, let's see, something from, I've read a couple of the pieces on here, but not very much. My husband says that they're funny and he thinks I should. So, here we go. I'm going to read from, let's see, so go to Blogspot, Memoirs of a Misanthrope at Blogspot. And Misanthrope might sound harsh, but anyone who's ever worked with the public in retail or restaurant or whatever, I think anybody that anybody does that will come to the point where they uh, think, yeah, I'm a misanthrope, definitely. I don't want anything to do. You, you just get to wear, uh-uh. No, 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 no. So let's see. I've got a couple of guest posts in here, but here we go. I'm going to read about a job I had at the Georgia World Congress Center. Write it in there, but you know where it is. And it was a job in the concierge part. So there's a lot of profanity in this one. So I guess since it's late at night and they're probably all adults, I may just go ahead and read it. So this one is called Convention and Visitor Center Ready to Serve. Here's one I submitted to a contest for a book called Jobs of the Damned. I didn't get enough votes to get in, but got to read many other submissions of people who had been through uh, psycho boss hell. There is far more to this particular story, which I'll get to soon. The year is 2007. Being laid off and getting a degree in PR in a city that prefers them barely post-investment, I was glad to get a job as a concierge, actually part of the city's convention, and Visitor Center Bureau in a major downtown hotel and convention center. 
Now, the boss was in his 60s, a tidy little gay man from the Deep South with a master's in art history, who could be fun in the right mood, but his daily habit of weed and wine did nothing to help a brain that was immersed in hallucinogens he bragged of from his college days. Although the schedule was erratic, we weren't allowed to write it down, seriously, and were only given a few days at a time. He said he just couldn't think that far. Let's call her Lola, worked there. Well, she drew a paycheck, though she rarely showed up or called. She wants to miss an entire week of work and made her pay plus overtime that week. She had a long and very codependent relationship, or they had a long codependent relationship, and were the personification of Philip and Mildred in Somerset Mom's book of human bondage. Every day I had to be by his side as he checked his email. Every time he needed to send an email with an attachment, I had to walk him through it step by step. Every time. He refused to write it down. And for two years, every step was torture. But it won't work. Yes, it will. No, it's not there. Something happened to it. No, it's still there. See? Well, baby Jesus, F me in the effing heart. Unfortunately, he was not able to speak a sentence or phrase without some of the most foul combinations of swearing I've ever heard. Twenty minutes it took for every email attachment. There there were days when he couldn't open an email, when he called the IT guys or his ISP to cuss them harshly. I would open it for him. Well, since when do you have to do that? Always. More cursing and disbelief. Once he opened a link and cursed and swore that John McCain was controlling the Internet so people could only see what McCain allowed. The scheduled conversations. Are you coming in tomorrow? No. It's a good thing I asked. Why not? You told me not to. So you just weren't going to show up or call? Not if I'm told not to come, no. God damn it, just give me a straight answer. Or, now when you come in tomorrow, um, I'm off tomorrow, remember? Hospital biopsy, but we need staff. What time can you get here? Um, hospital says to have someone drive me home, remember? So I won't be here. We talked about this. Baby Jesus, just fuck me in the goddamn fucking heart, why don't you? More cursing, and then more cursing. To shore this story, I'll just make a list of the highlights. When the opportunity came for one of us to work an extra shift at twice the pay, he only booked himself and the gal that was attendance challenged. He quit putting one gal on the schedule because he suspected him of stealing some of his weed clientele. You heard me. He ran a good profit center on the side selling weed to some downtown restaurant employees. He had a restaurant menu back magazine biz, a concierge menu book on the side, and when restaurants wouldn't pay to be in it, he would pull their menus from the convention and visitor center shelves and tell us not to recommend them. Acting like a mafia don, they're dead to me. Or we'll show them how powerful our menu book is. Even though the restaurant owners had paid membership dues to the convention and visitors bureau for us to have, uh, for us to recommend them to the guests. When the barista in our Starbucks began sexually harassing me, he refused to get involved. I found that HR had contacted him, and he told them I had changed my mind and decided to drop it. If Boss Weed and Lola went into a restaurant, ordered a big meal and wine, they would turn into a pair of Leona Helmsleys, tormenting the servers and sending back food. If a restaurant 
for the meal, they would tell us to never send people there or say it was closed. Sometimes people would approach the concierge desk asking for information and directions, and it was though a switch was flipped and the anti-concierge was in. You can't go there. You just can't. They won't let you in, and don't ask me or anyone else again. I took his handwritten reports and created nice templates to make his boss's job easier. He told the general manager that Lola did them. There was more, but I'm saving them for the book. Occasionally, he would catch me at lunch studying software manuals or practicing for the GRE. Then he'd yell at me, that's a goddamn waste of time. You'll just be an overeducated concierge. Nobody's going to hire you. His temper, memory, and personality were such a constant roller coaster of emotions. We'd take bets on it. The last week I was there, I was cursed out for calling to say the main highway was iced over and I couldn't get in. Hung up on twice, lied to about schedule, and told F.U., then he said not to come back because I was being let go, so I didn't call back. Of course, the fool calls five times the next day looking for me. I think he just wanted to open his email. The biggest downer of all was that he told me I was laid off, but told the Convention and Visitor Bureau I quit, so I was never able to get unemployment benefits, though I fought for it for eight months. The Department of Labor would budge. Oh, let's call on some karma. Okay. Did you like that? Did you like that at all? Okay. Let me know if you did. Um, I've got some more time. Call in. Call in. Tell a story. Tell a joke. I am going to play a little bit more music, one more music. If you've got something you want to hear, if you've got something you want to tell a story about. Oh, by the way, did anybody stay at Walt Westcon see Tobias? This is Tobias's... Um, I didn't manage to get him on here before Wild West this year. Hopefully he'll still come back before something else. This was his uh, the voiceover from his intro on the Steampunk game. I'm Tobias, and to me, Steampunk is this awesome fusion art of this neo-Victorian genre that has story in the background and, and creativity running amok. I understand that we're making magic, but that doesn't mean I have to dream about it. I can just do it. And that kind of visceral, tangible thing just means I can move forward. All right, Tobias, he's so much fun. Okay, now, um, let's play a little Moses Mo while I find something else to read or until somebody calls me for cancellation.
songs that describe what love is, but they still fall short in defining its substance. Words fail to serve us complex subjects. Sorry if you expect this verse to compress some depth. My personal perspective is love is the concept. Every person you subjectively with relative context. Love and lust are so often confused. This is what I want from me and what I want from you. I love you, I love you, baby. Believe and say it enough to each other, then maybe we'll meet. And there's a great secret to making relationships work. They only take one word. Determine if that person's even worth all that effort The seven billion others on a possibly better So did you bother to search? What's more probable, the universe brought you together Or you just set off intolerable Real slow, so I can feel the heat I still believe you and me were always meant to be I'll give you anything you ask, you fulfill my needs It's your time, cause love ain't going nowhere Won't share no fear, we're both here Not no tears, the love so pure won't disappear Let's see what happens. 
Okay, this is a column called Job Hunting Part 2. So there's a couple of places where I was hunting for a job. Okay. Company that makes binding product for businesses or hobbyists. And the name of the company rhymes with Unibind. Okay? All right. Public relations went online and applied three times. Finally got a phone call about an interview. Granted, I was in the car on a cell phone, but she had one of those high, nasally valley girl voices that only her closest friends could understand. So I'll make this one short because my boil bloods anew every time I think of it. This cute girl, about 11 years old, wearing flip-flops and a long tie-dyed skirt and a graphic T-shirt, comes to me for the interview. She introduces herself as B, the HR manager and corporate recruiter, and I thought it was take your daughter to work day. First, I'm taking a meet. Matt Coors, department manager, who is actually a frustrated wannabe horror writer and gives off a generally unhappy vibe altogether. The interview seems more of an argument with him telling me rudely what he is sure my limitations are and trying to get me to give up my media contacts and trade secrets. However, they may consider me if I'll take half of what they offered in salary. Then I got pulled back to B's office where I was grilled about my years of freelance work and the inevitable question of whether or not I'd want to come to a job every day when I freelance so long. I got real. Well, B, as you know, most companies in Atlanta will not want to hire a PR person who is over 25 years old. That's why freelancing goes right. She nodded knowingly and said, that's true, but you look like you still get around pretty good for your age. I was speechless. Yes, how do you answer that? Gee, I hope no one trips over the walker and portable oxygen tank I left in the hall. Then she added, and as long as you can still get around and get out and do things, I think you should. I should have spanked her right there and sent her back to school so a grown-up could take over the office. Temp world. Like a lot of folks, I enjoyed temp work back in the day. You learn a lot, develop new skills, and you pay a few bills. The difference between temping and going permanent is the same as courting and getting hitched. You get the idea. I like temping. Well, I did. Nowadays, it's not so easy to get into temp land. The agencies act suspicious of you. A lot of tests must be taken. Then they want to run a credit check and either direct you to a lab for drug tests or send you to their own restroom with a little plastic cup. It's been a while since my last software skill assessment. In the last three years, I've worked at a place where at least an hour a day was wasted teaching a cursing pothead, wino, idiot boss, how to add an attachment to an email and to double-click to open an email. The first staffing recruiter I meet reads my test result and looking back at my resume, shakes her head and says, sorry, I don't think we can work with you. Your scores are too high, and you are too educated. Now, this is repeated at the next three offices. Well, fat lot of good going to college did me. What if I promise to underperform, speak poorly, slack off, and take extra breaks? Most people at the agencies answer the phone like it's midnight, and you're their bastard brother calling from jail for the 40th time for money. Big sigh. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll call. Whatever. 
once I saw that I had just missed a call from the temp folks, they left no message. I called easily. Oh, yeah. Uh, we were calling about a job. We didn't know if you'd want it. Great. I'm available. Where? Well, we called someone else. Oh, I wish I'd left a message. Well, uh, we didn't know if you'd want it. Here's another good. Call to say I'm available. Guy answers. Sounds like you snuck in and not sure what's up. Oh, uh, you uh, like what? Again, I give my name and say I'm available for an assignment. Oh, well, um, could you like uh, call back tomorrow when someone's here to take like a message? So that's what I do. And the nice lady says, oh, you talked with Josh, our new branch manager. Huh. He's a manager? He has a whole branch to manage? And the little twit can either take a message or speak in a complete sentence? And he's got a branch to manage? I'm too educated, noble gown of America. Can this mudslide or dump slide be stopped, reversed, damned, D-A-M-M-E-D, or are we damned? All right. That's two stories. If you want another... Well, let me know. Let me know what you thought of these. In the meantime, I'm going to play a song by a couple out in California. Or would you rather hear my? Okay, somebody just said you want to hear one of my songs from my CD. And if you want my CD, just message me. Give me your address. I'll send it to you. So here is the title song from my CD. Everybody's got to swing with my band, the Jennifer Combo. And I think you're wonderful. Come back tomorrow night. It's going to be a good show. The guest, who is my guest going to be tomorrow night? Let's see. Tomorrow night is, uh, oh, psychotherapist Patty Ashley. Uh, she's going to be here tomorrow night. And then also we're going to have the Bella, the clothing store that was our uh, sponsor for several weeks, and they also do a lot of good things for women's and children in need. And let's see, okay, so back to the studio over here, and my song, this is called Everybody's Got a Swing, written with me, my husband Denton Perry, and our good friend Tom Wolf. I love you. Check back with me tomorrow. Let's... Uh, I hope the folks at Consolation are having a good time and just too busy to call. And I think you're wonderful, and I think everybody's got the swing. Bye-bye.
Spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.